0: You are listening to Handheld Radio. My life was out of control. You want to get high. My addiction was controlling me. Your decision making's down. I had the choice to continue on my path of self-destruction. It's the same thing if you're in love or change and rebuild my life when you're in love with someone you can do something totally fucked I chose to change you would never imagine that you're doing provides all the tools I need to change you love this person so much and as brothers and sisters we help each other in this struggle and you feel so enchanted however I'm responsible for achieving my full potential having an addiction is a disease I am changing my attitude being an addict is a disease I am changing my behavior It's not a moral deficiency. I am changing my values, it's a disease. I am changing my life. People with cancer, the power to succeed lies within me. They don't say, well, I'm gonna have cancer today. I will graduate from Addiction is just like that. Be the best person I can be. Just like having diabetes. For myself. Or cancer. For my family. You need to treat that. And for my community. There's been so many nights I've woken up. This I promised, and been like, why? Why, why, why? This side promise, did I do that, and then go and doing it again because that's all I know how to do. This side promise. I put this tattoo with the positive and negative on myself over my track marks to represent balance where I need to be reminded of it most. As you can see here, I use these veins a lot. You can see track marks because this is your main vein. But I decided to put this right here on my forearm as a reminder you know because a lot of the time I look at these scars and I see something that's ugly and I see something to be embarrassed about and then I think about it and I have nothing to be embarrassed about because this for me is all a learning curve a great experience I don't recommend everyone goes through this experience but if you have to then you have to and I am sitting here today and I am alive which to me is like an amazing gift they just can't understand why we pick up drugs. And what they need to realize is we don't understand either. And that's what we're doing is we're trying to understand. And as you start to understand, that's when you start getting a grasp on your addiction. But addiction never sleeps. Addiction doesn't take vacation. So why should recovery? Addiction never takes a day off. Neither can recovery. My name is Matthew Samways. I'm a 24-year-old white Canadian male. I identify predominantly as an artist and I also am a musician. I've been living in different parts of Canada, mostly Halifax over the last decade, going to school at NASCAD and studying audio engineering. So I grew up in Gander, Newfoundland, essentially. I lived there till I was 12. Very insular, very neurotic, very strange sense of humor. I was like dressing up like a girl to hang out with my sister playing with her barbies, that was my idea of fun, I wasn't out on the bicycle and I was very emotionally unstable, just constantly freaking out. And though I was 12 years old, I moved to Regina, Saskatchewan with my mother, and in this time she had remarried, and then separated again. So I was introduced to that whole system of two families coming together and then coming apart within two or three years. I picked up drugs for the very first time when I was 12 years old, and it was marijuana. And I remember a big ordeal, me and a couple other kids, we were in Gander, Newfoundland. We get a gram of marijuana. At the time in Newfoundland, it was like $15 or something, which was huge, like a jacked price. And we're getting this and we're going out in the woods and we're smoking it. And I remember just like laying back on the rocks. And this is the first time it was actually stoned. And I'm looking in the sky and I'm like, this is fucking awful. Like, I have crazy anxiety. I hate this. I'm worried about my mother, what she's gonna think, what the smell of me. I can't think straight. I'm like, gonna throw up. I feel nauseous. I'm dizzy. And I have no idea what the fuck's going on. And I remember waking up the next day being like, that was great. (laughs) I loved that. Finally, a way to escape. So I'm there like, rolling quarters or rolling pennies, being like, hey, dude, you want to go pick up another joint and then smoking the joint being like, oh, this is awful. I hate this. And then waking up and like totally forgetting about that, that anxiety and all of that stuff that comes with getting stoned. And I just loved the idea of like getting out of myself. And then it was very shortly thereafter that I loved being stoned on weed. From that point forward, from the age of 12 to 15 are the formative years of me going into like a decade of smoking weed every single day. I was very interested in that whole romantic, it should be embarrassing for me to say, but because I've come to terms with it, it's not. That whole romantic Kurt Cobain, heroin, chic, that rock and roll, sex and drugs, all that bullshit was really exciting to me. All of the literature I was reading, all of the music I was listening to, fashion, everything was like very much of that destructive really sort of subversive culture which became quite influential not only for me but for kids that I was hanging out with. It was all just glam so I very quickly became almost addicted to that glam sort of lifestyle because I was like living on the floor and like doing all this abstract thinking and conceptualizing things on this astral plane at such a young age And I thought that I was enduring this really cool art practice, when really it was just a myth. There is absolutely a romanticized drug use built into all of that culture. If the musician isn't singing about getting high, they're talking about it in their interviews. And as a 10 to 12-year-old boy who's coming into puberty and coming into the ideas of, of what life should look like, that stuff is interesting because it's unknown, it's curious, and it's I had enormous anxiety, glorifying, romanticizing, waiting to get that stoned, that anxiety would carry me through until I was able to get high. So I wouldn't even be able to sit in class in high school because I had so much anxiety because I was thinking about getting high. And then I would smoke weed and I would go in class and be like, shit, this sucks. This is awkward. The teacher knows. The teacher's looking at me in the eyes. The teacher just saw me walk from across the field into his classroom. The paranoia was so strong. But then I developed a relationship with with marijuana where I could smoke at night at home and then sit on the computer for 12 hours and keep smoking weed and it would be great because there's no one around and I could drink all the Coca-Cola I want, smoke all the cigarettes, and be on this infinite world of the internet. I do believe that weed is a gateway drug. Your biochemistry is affected by smoking marijuana, and although it doesn't have any physical dependency, an addict is an addict. It's a medication to your brain. Your brain senses one thing, it doesn't really matter what it is, but it's like, nice, I get to shut off for a little bit, or I get to look away from myself. By the time I'm 15 and 16, weed is getting a little bit boring, and you're wanting that stimulation, and you're wanting those experiences of more. So you start doing what I call light drugs, which are psychedelics. I started dropping acid. I started eating mushrooms. By the time I was 17, I was snorting cocaine. All of that stigma that you would have towards all of these hard drugs, as you do another drug, as you do another drug, as you do another drug, it all kind of goes away and it feels normal. It feels like a part of your culture. So I was doing tons of cocaine by the time I was 17 years old. I can think of utilitarian purpose for each drug. Speed, which is like methamphetamines, crystal methamphetamines, ADHD medication, Adderall, Dexedrine, Ritalin, Vyavance, Bifentin, All of that stuff is really hyper-focused. It allows you to do a great deal of work and not have to nourish and strengthen your body or really think about your body and take care of yourself or any other responsibility because you have the ability to hyper-focus your mind on this one thing and do it without fatigue. And then when the fatigue starts happening, you can always just take more drugs and perpetuate those effects. All my grants, I received four or five grants of the provincial government, 25, 30 pages written. I would take tons of speed. By the time I was going to school, I was doing tons of speed for homework to focus on my homework. I would do it when I was mixing music or then even if I was going out and I was drinking and you want to have like a really hyper aware fun time going dancing or whatever you want to have all this energy, you take speed or you do cocaine and then I tried crack cocaine and it's like why am I wasting my time putting this shit up my nose when I was 17 it was the first time I tried Oxycontin oxy-80s, you can smoke them off tinfoil. You fold up a piece of tinfoil like this, and you chase it just like you would with heroin. And I smoked that, and I was like, this is fucking incredible. Euphoria was all I felt. All my problems, gone. Thrown out the door. Seventeen. Montreal. A couple friends, you know, maybe ten years older than I, who were using, and thought it was okay because they wanted me to use with them. I remember in high school when I was not being able to go to class, telling myself that I couldn't go to class, getting all of this anxiety that I could not go to class because I wasn't stoned or I didn't have clonazepam, which is a benzodiazepine, which is a sedative, essentially, an anti-anxiety medication that was prescribed to me by the doctor. I was in the mindset that I couldn't go to class without this stuff. So if I didn't have this, I would have this great anxiety and I would just choose not to go to school. I remember at the time being like, this is a problem. and then. I dropped out of high school and I was getting success with other things through the music business industry and through art. I was achieving what I believed to be success because there were some monetary gains and some international recognition. Whatever that looked like, it started to go really well for me. So when I started to use drugs in conjunction with doing that stuff, it wasn't a problem because I could work from home, I could be in my bedroom making. All of this stuff happened on the internet, and using drugs like speed, and then using the counteractive downers like a benzo, or like heroin, or any opiate, using those two things in conjunction, you feel like fucking Superman. Speedballs, they call it. You feel like you can do absolutely anything in the world. When I was in grade 10, I started playing in this group, this rock punk band called Pig. and people really liked us because we were these kids, we were fearless, we were kind of snarky, and we were crazy. That was quite authentic to the music. So because of all of my anxiety and depression, whether it was brought upon by myself or not, in conjunction with smoking a lot of pot, eating a lot of pan and then doing acid on weekends and drinking quite heavily for someone who's 15 or 16 years old. Those three years I did spend in high school, I had obtained four high school credits. So we started a tour of Canada. Just go to little cities and Toronto, Montreal and then little cities. And, you know, we were making a little bit of money and it was really exciting and people across the country were posting on their blogs or whatever. and It was all really exciting for us. And. I wasn't thinking about a future career. I was simply just thinking about that present moment, which was like, I loved playing live music loud and getting fucked up, getting drunk, as drunk as possible before we perform. And it was really fun. So with all that anxiety that I was going through, I explained that to this guidance counselor, and I said, you know, the second I come into this building, I get this extreme feeling of anxiety in my stomach. All of these, what I thought were like, because I thought I was terminally unique. was this alien. I thought that no one understood me, blah, blah, blah she actually told me you should drop out you know you're quite intelligent you're bright and i think that there's other options for you i told my mother she was like "Bullshit," didn't believe me thought i was just trying to get her to co-sign me dropping out of high school but i was there for three years i would have had to been there for another two and a half years to actually graduate it was ridiculous and at that time I had received my first Provincial grant, which was for $4,000 for my record label, Electric Voice Records. So, through that, I was able to start generating profit through taking other people's music, overseeing the mastering process, and then overseeing the release process, whether that was on vinyl, digital, or cassette tape, overseeing all of the press, all of the digital stuff, everything that was happening online, I was able to generate some profit. And then very quickly, I went from selling 100 cassettes over the course of a few shows, to selling online hundreds of records a month, distributing other people's records, and my own records that I was putting out through Electric Boards. That's another thing that was, drove me deep into my addiction was having to ship records. Because I'm 18, 19 years old, and I'm shipping all of these orders across the world. Some wholesale, larger orders, and some just one, one T-shirt, one record, one cassette it really started to pile up. So I was taking tons of speed, spending 24 hours straight, working, shipping orders, going, 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 and then I would crash for a certain amount of time and then do it all over again because I I never felt caught up with that. And then shortly thereafter, I became the assistant director for a non for profit music festival in Halifax called Obey Convention, which only really happened four days of the year, but we, myself and the, the creative director, the owner, Darcy Spidel, we spent maybe five months of the year buckled down only working on that, and he and I were the only ones that were actually on salary. So it was a lot of responsibility. We were drawing in $50,000 in sponsorships and funding, provincial grants, national grants through FACTOR, through the, through the Heritage and Cult- Cultural Division in Nova Scotia, And we were drawing in about $50,000 in ticket sales. So it was quite a large operation for two people. One being kind of a gnarly drug addict who had this record label that he was also doing. And then I started traveling back and forth from Montreal doing concerts there where I I would clear $2,000 in a night from promoting a concert. And at the time, like, I wasn't thinking about saving money, anything like that. I was really just living on the fringe for now, right then and there. So I could take that money and I could be high for a week with this beautiful woman. And it felt like everything was okay because of that instant gratification. And then that money would be gone and then I'd do it all over again. I started going to the Nova Scotia Community College for recording arts. Being a full-time student, having a business, and then being the assistant director for this non-for-profit was already an insane amount of work. And then on top of that, I would take jobs like I worked at a cafe, I was a night janitor, I worked at call centers, I did a lot of cleaning, worked for like various junk removal, non-skilled labor sort of stuff. I did all of that for supplementary income. And then on top of all of that, I started selling drugs. In my mind, it was a blessing because I could support my own habit while as selfishly and awfully feeding other people's habits. And I could draw profit continue to do that and I would never have to worry about having to score drugs because I would always have them and that just put me down into like a really really dark hole and I disserviced a lot of people because I sold them drugs or gave them drugs because I I was quite generous and if you really care about someone you don't do that if you really care about someone's well-being you're creating them an extreme disservice by giving them or selling them drugs because you're giving them something that's gonna ruin their lives for about two or three years it was constantly ready to give out at any point. And then I would fix this, I would fix that, I would get help from this person, help from this person, I would get this job or that job, I would start doing this or that, you know I started modeling or I would start doing little roles in films, just whatever all of this stuff that was constantly just keeping it all together when really it was all ready to give out at any time and I was so scared that I wouldn't be able to do it without the use of narcotics that I just kept going and then eventually if you're snorting Dilaudid or hydromorphone or whatever or painkiller you're like this is this is getting me high but like I could save a lot of money and I could get a lot higher if I was putting it in my veins so that's just a natural progression you become so impaired you become so disassociated and so disconnected from your own moral code and your own integrity that when you're so high that it's okay to shove a needle in your arm and that just became habitual part of my life and it was just a vehicle of efficiency in my mind when really it was just me ultimately acting under my addiction when you take drugs you are altering the course of nature and you are believing things that aren't real you're telling yourself things that are not real and that's psychosis that's early signs of psychosis but also can be induced by all drugs, including minor drugs like coding. They can bring you into this induced psychosis. It gives you self-confidence that isn't real. It just, it really, it inflates all of these aspects of one's character and ego that are just simply not real, and it's not sustainable. You are in turn killing your body, your mind, and then ultimately your spirit becomes quite broken. I do think that There are drugs that open those doors to creativity. But the outcome is not real. I can't stress that enough. It's like you want to get to the top of this mountain because you see the most beautiful image of this in your head. This this most extraordinary image of the top of the mountain but it's going to take work for you to climb up the mountain. So you're taking drugs and you think that you're going up that mountain quick. You think that you're running up that mountain. You can just spike up it. But what's actually happening is as you take the drugs, you're going into this room. Six miles away from the mountain, you're going into this room and you see this little television set with this blurry fucking image of this beautiful mountaintop exactly like you an imagined it. And you keep taking the drugs, and every so often you get this clear set image of this beautiful mountaintop. And you're like, oh my god, this is amazing, this is exactly what I wanted. And then you actually step into reality and you take a look around and you're in this little room in the middle of nowhere, and the mountaintop's actually way farther than you expected. It's, it's a, a synthesized experience. Well, I first tried to get clean when I was 21. Did a program, thought I could do it. And really just the absence of using drugs doesn't keep you clean. That's what we call white-knuckling. When you don't use drugs, but you're not dealing with any of your resentments, any of your anger, or any of your emotional traumas. You're just not using drugs. I was doing that on and off all the time, but I was miserable. I really had to burn every single bridge in my life at the time for me to realize how destructive I was. And for me to realize how much this was impacting people that really cared about me and loved me instead of myself, because I didn't care about myself. It's like, say I had a, a really good friend, you know, I would borrow money and be like, oh, this is the last time I'm gonna get clean. And then a month later, this is the last time, don't tell anyone, I'm gonna get clean. And then eventually they're like, I'm either gonna have to cut you off or you need to do something because one of these days you're just gonna die. People just get fed up with that shit. People get fed up with empty promises and people lose trust. In addiction, dishonesty is crucial. My mother was married to my father and then she remarried. She had her wedding rings molded into one with the diamonds placed in a design that she had made. You either are having to lie to yourself I stole that a couple of years ago and went and got high to justify it. why it's okay to be using drugs all the time. Of course she's like, did you see this, this, or that? And of course I said no. So that's one thing to lie to yourself. And then of course, people are gonna wonder, like, at the time I was desperate, needed money, wasn't thinking. They're gonna wonder why you're using drugs. I was holding resentments towards my father. That's when lying starts to come into play. Justified it that way. Your addiction wants to protect itself. Took the fucking thing, went and pawned it. It doesn't want anybody. Went and got high and then forgot about it ever getting in its way. Did the same thing next day with another situation. You're living in total dishonesty. You don't know what the fuck's happening in your world. You don't know what's real and what's not. Then you start compulsively lying about other things. Because like, why the fuck not? You know, what'd you have for breakfast? I had an omelet. When really like, your eggs were boiled. Why are you lying? Because it's habitual, because it's part of addiction. Is to be secretive it's to hide this and that. Uh, I'm 22, or 23, no I'm 22, it's the dead of fucking winter in Halifax. That winter, 2015 I think, but it was brutal. I'm going to Nascat, and I'm getting student loans, I have a line of credit for my business, and I'm going through a breakup with a junkie. So I'm dating this woman, we're living together. She's threatening to jump out the window. We're using drugs together. It's crazy. I'm on a, a tear. I have this drug dealer who we spent all night. He's 55 years old. We spent all night in his basement tearing out the copper. I, was hel- I had money, but I was helping him to get a deal on drugs tear out all the copper pipes in his basement, replacing them with rubber so he could cash the copper and three nights ago, three nights earlier, sorry, there was a a recycling night. So we had a shopping cart full of recyclables near a construction site. We cut the fence, went in, I stood at one side of the power cord. It's like $300 worth of copper in that thing. He's shutting off the power on the other end and cutting it, pulling it, and then we're wheeling it up, meeting in the middle, putting it in the shopping cart going down and then going back to his house and melting out all this copper. That night I introduced him to MDMA, which is a euphoric ecstasy. I show him that you can boil it down and shoot it up. So he's like loving this. He's this 55 year old man who's a junkie. He's getting prescribed all of this because he had a bad knee surgery. Something went wrong. He's getting fentanyl, Dilaudid, all this stuff. So I'm get- scoring him MDMA. We're shooting MDMA together. I'm, I'm doing cocaine, I'm shooting coke, I'm snorting eight ball of cocaine, two and a half grams, three and a half grams, in that night, right? I bought $750 worth of pills from him, that night. Twelve hours passes, and I'm just sitting there, just getting fucking loaded, eating Valium. Nasty cocktail, ready to die. I just didn't care about anything. Sitting there, just boiling up pill after, pill after pill after pill after pill, and eventually I started to have a seizure, and I gave out. And I was very sick, like sweating, puking. There's what's called cotton fever, which is when bacteria gets in the actual cotton of your on your spoon or your cooker, and when you pull it back, bacteria gets in it. They thought I had cotton fever. I didn't stop seizing. They called an ambulance and dragged me out on the sidewalk in the fucking snow because they didn't want the ambulance coming to his house, so all of this is retold to me by the ambulance driver. They show up, I'm alone on the sidewalk when they get there my heart was stopped. So for about 10 or 15 seconds after they got there, until they shot me up with Narcon, I was just cold on the sidewalk. (laughs) Yeah, so and then I remember and then I remember like eight hours later waking up in the hospital feeling fucked sick getting up pulling the whatever fluids they had me on IV, pulling that out of my arm getting up and walking back to that guy's house which is in the deep deep north end of Halifax and I'm in a snowstorm at like three o'clock in the morning so sick just stumbling two hours up the street to go get high with him because all the drugs that I had bought was still with him This time last year, I was on a lease living at a house with my best friend in Halifax. And he was just so fucking fed up with my shit. I was using behind his back because I knew that he was not happy. You know, he didn't want to see me going down that road. He really loves me and he really cares about me. So I was he was finding needles. He was finding this and that left around. Whether it was intentional to me or not, I don't know. Because I was so out of it just using any drug I could find at any time and any means to do it going out on the street collecting money whatever I had to do and through all that stuff I've had some terrifying I've had a gun pulled on me I've had knives pulled on me all of that stuff has happened and none of it scared me anymore I just wanted to get high or die and eventually he just kicked me out so like, you're gone and he called my sister or my mother who came and they took me to my mother's house in Truro and she's like you need to do something that is radical. If you don't, I'm not gonna support you anymore because I can't I can't contribute to you dying. Like I don't wanna be a part of your death. And you're a grown ass man, anything you do is totally up to you, but I'm not gonna support it anymore. I'm not gonna stand by and watch it happen. So at that point I was like, Alright, I'm gonna get clean. And then I spent two months here in Truro thinking that I was clean, but I was still smoking weed every day and eating clonazepam every day because the doctor prescribed it to me. At the time I thought, well, if the doctor prescribed it, it's not compromising my sobriety and it's only weed. But I don't remember that two months at all. So like, what does that say about addiction? It says a lot. I've gone to a detox center before. Detoxing from my drugs of choice, which was opiates and speed. But this particular time, I did it at my mother's house. I'm sure you've heard tell. you have an idea of what detoxing from heroin is like. It's awful. You're incredibly sick. You feel the worst sickness you've ever felt in your life. You have restless legs, you know, and you can't sleep. But You have no energy. You're sweating. You're shitting yourself. You're vomiting. You can't eat you're in extreme amounts of pain and it seems unreal. Really it goes on for one to two weeks. Hardcore sickness is seven to 14 days and then after that you feel a general fatigue, Like you feel ill for about a month or two and then it's all emotional and mental. It wasn't until I was about three months sober on my own that I realized that I needed to do this for myself that it really started to become something that I was doing for myself and not to appease my friends and family which is really what kept putting me in recovery. It was because they were so distressed and you know, they were like, I can't help you anymore. You need to go into recovery. I would go into recovery, but I, w- I wasn't doing it for myself. It wasn't until I gained that clarity through being clean that I realized that I was loving myself for all the wrong reasons and that I started loving myself for all the right reasons. I don't really remember, honestly. I was coming off of clonazepam, so that's, that, that's a really, really hard drug to come off of. And I was coming off of eating a f- f- handful. So to actually get on the plane, I ate 20 milligrams, which is fatal amount. It is a, a fatal amount of benzos, and you can very easily, very easily overdose. My tolerance was so, so high that I, d- thank, thank God I didn't, but that's what it took me to get on the plane. So I don't remember at all getting there, anything. I remember being destroyed that I couldn't smoke cigarettes. Distraught, crying over it. I was so emotionally raw and my my thinking was so irregular and irrational that that was normal. But I'm bawling my eyes out because I can't smoke the one last cigarette. They're like, you're here now, you can't leave. And I'm just like, but I have this, you know, and they're taking everything I own, they're shaving my head. I'm just like... Shock, but also like I said, so docile that I would have just done anything and I was just like, alright, whatever I gotta do. I have no, I, I felt like I had no other option. My mother is an amazing woman and she really cares about me. She said as soon as we got in Vancouver, because we spent two days in Vancouver before I went in, she said every, but every person on the street that seemed to be active at, like using, like a junkie or something, I was a magnet. Was all of those people. Everyone was just drawn to me. She said I was submitting some sort of energy that she's never seen anything like it before. But I'm like getting joints off these guys on the streets and cigarettes and interacting with all of these street level junkies. And she, she said she she's never seen anything like it before in her life. She took me to the place, it's, she was very emotional. Part of her was fed up too, because even in that two days I was lying because I was trying to get drugs. I was trying to get high for the last time. So I was taking money and lying and all of this stuff, so it was quite dramatic. But she was just wanting to get me there. She realized that nothing she could do was going to help me because she had already tried everything. So she was basically like praying to God that this would work. It's very alien. I remember when I got there, the program director said to my mother and I like, Get ready, you're going to Mars. Is verbatim what he said. I was so docile and I was just ready for change. I would have done anything for change, that I was like, if this is what's gonna take, then I'm going to Mars, you know what I mean? (laughs) I do believe that it takes immense commitment to change your life and for behavioral modifications to happen. So part of going to you need to commit to being there for the two years. So one of the most positive things about that would be that you're allotting yourself two years, an acceptable amount of time to actually retrain yourself and allow your neural pathways to create new opportunities for themselves. To have new relationships with yourself and to endure the cognitive process of recovery, which takes displacement from your environment. You have to cut off communication with anybody who could be detrimental to you seeing a clear image of yourself. And anything that can be distracting, is it's all stripped away from you. That's actually a really great opportunity. You pay a $5,000 intake fee and you don't make any money while you're there. It's all voluntary. You don't have to worry about bills. You don't have to worry about feeding yourself. You get three square meals a day. You get water at certain times. You get a bed and shelter. You don't have to worry about anything else in the world that might distract you from really just taking a good, hard fucking look at yourself. Another thing is you have a community of other addicts who are just as manipulative and just as smart as you, street smart as you were. 60 of these people, you can't get anything past them. You know, you can't pull any of your old bullshit with them because you can't bullshit a bullshitter. That I found to be entirely true. People are intuitive in that way. And when you're lying to someone, they know. And why you're lying, they know because they've done it. And part of that process, in order to change, you need to be a hypocrite. Sometimes you need to call someone out on their shit when you're doing the same shit for you to actually realize how you can make those steps to change. So it's a safe place. It's a safe place to fuck up. Because you can make any mistake there in the world, but ultimately you have a huge safety net and a huge group of people that will pick you up if you're down. And you don't have the opportunity to go out and get loaded because you have no money, you have no phone. You're on the other side of the fucking country. You don't even know where you are you're forced into a situation where you have to volunteer eight hours a day and then the other three hours of your day you have to participate in these activities you don't have another choice so there's a grocery store on site there's a, a biopod, so like a little garden there's landscaping duties that you can do but in the grocery store it's a fully functioning grocery store with a, a deli a bakery a furniture section it's fully functioning non-for-profit grocery store all of the employees are actually volunteers that are students at the Duties include stocking shelves, working the cashier checkout, which is what I was doing. And I soon became a supervisor of the cashiers. So I'm overseeing four or five other students who are working this job. Say you get caught stealing money from the... You're not going to get in trouble through the law. You're going to get in trouble through the... Which could mean indefinite work, which is something that I did, which was 21 days of working from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m., 16-hour days with two... 15 minute breaks for food and then after that 21 days they can put you back on it for another 21 days if they want. So that was one of the most ultimate learning experiences. I look back on that experience as quite positive because it provided me with a great deal of humility that I never knew to be true or real. It was enlightening and it also gave me the belief that I can do anything without drugs because before I couldn't even think about going to work without getting high first or having to go to a family dinner I needed to get high first. All these things in my mind, I thought I needed to get high first. When really, like, through that experience, I learned that I don't need to get high to do anything. I have all this ambition and drive inside of me that can be regulated, my emotions can be regulated through structure, and through discipline, and through treating my body right, through prayer and meditation, and through talking to somebody. All of these things, being honest, not holding resentments, all of these things, like, I can create a highly functional human, and I don't need anything, any substance to do so. Also being force-fed, only being able to read self-help literature. I like, I'm an avid reader. I probably wouldn't have read all of that self-help literature if I could have read something else. I was forced to have a good hard look at myself, and I was forced to constantly have recovery on my mind, which was really good for me. One that really stands out to me is called the Four Agreements. So the Four Agreements are, be impeccable with your word, don't take anything personally, don't make any assumptions, and always do your best. So really, the most important one is be impeccable with your word. When you say you're going to do something, you actually do it. And when you don't take things personally, that includes positive affirmation. You say, thank you. You don't let that go to your head and be like, fuck yeah. And so that's the same if someone's saying something negative to you. It just rolls off. You don't take it personally, therefore you don't get in that confrontation and you don't develop the opportunity for resentments so that's huge there are negative parts about the program you have people 60 men who are all, who are being treated across the board no matter what they do when really different emotional statuses need different treatment you can't have the same punishment for this guy when this guy's doing the exact same thing but he's on a totally different level doing it for a totally different reason he needs to look at something totally different In that respect, it needs to be more singular. That I'll break you down and you build yourself up. That model only works for so much. And then when you're in an environment like that, you can only build yourself up so much because you have no control over anything. You don't get to decide what you eat. You don't get to decide if you see a therapist for this or that. You don't have any control over anything. You don't even get to decide the clothes that you wear or how you wear your haircut or if you have an earring in or not. So you relinquish all of your control And then eventually you start becoming in a place where you want to make decisions for yourself because you need to learn how to make decisions and how to manage money and how to manage relationships, which you cannot do there. And sometimes you need to make mistakes to learn, but you don't have that opportunity there. They rob you of that completely. They're they're not called punishments. They're called learning experiences. It was because I made up with this young lady from Texas. Part of the rules there is you can't have no new relationships. This young lady, she had a speaking ban towards all men. She had to write a letter essentially to her, her group, her family as they would call it, explaining why codependent relationships were detrimental towards a drug addict. And the reason why that was linked to her is because when she had introduced herself in the program, she had said that she often got outside of herself through relationships with men. So that was the behavior that was for her and for me because I had already been punished so many times for other things or were punished. I say that, you know, I've had learning experiences for other things. They had me say that promise twice a day in front of the whole community. And then there was a one time event where people from the outside world could visit this inside the institution. And I had to say the promise in front of maybe 500 people there. Loud and proud, hands by my side, at the top of my lungs. My life was out of control. My addiction was controlling me. I had the choice to continue on my path of self-destruction, or change and rebuild my life. I chose to change. It Provides all the tools I need to change, and as brothers and sisters we help each other in this struggle. However, I am responsible for achieving my full potential. I am changing my attitude. I am changing my behavior. I am changing my values. I am changing my life. The power to succeed lies within me. I will graduate from be the best person I can be for myself, for my family, and for my community. This I promise. This I promise. This I promise. Sixty of the people were actually members, students, as they would call it, of, and a number of the people there were their family members. So my mother and her boyfriend were actually there. This was the first time I had seen my mother in six months talk to her. I wasn't allowed to speak to her while I was in the program. She flew across the country for to spend four hours with me. This was kind of polarizing because I'm seeing my mother. I can't tell if she's holding back laughter or tears. She is surprised. She's shocked to see her her son, who six months earlier she left, who was 135 pounds. Long, black, gnarly hair quite eccentric she that's the that's who was presenting themselves when she left me there and then six months later she comes and i have a crew cut and i'm standing there military style reciting this promise to all of these people so a lot of my head was like i wonder what she's thinking of this does she think this is ridiculous and then i'm looking around and seeing that some people do think it's ridiculous and then there's like a hardcore community who are there and they're they've instilled all of their faith in their their children in this program they're in tears just such a visceral mode of reaction my acceptance was so high that i would have done anything in hindsight looking back i'm like wow like that's almost embarrassing because of just the format and just historically how those promises how how that type of thing is delivered i was like what's going on here i'm in rehab But at the time, it was so normal. When you spend 24 hours a day in this set routine, in this structure with the exact same people every day, when you don't have access to news, you don't have access to newspapers, or the telephone, or cell phones, or the internet, or books, all we could read was self-help literature. So when you don't have access to any of that stuff, any awareness of what's happening globally, you become so hyper-focused into this little world and it seems like it's the only thing that's real. And everything there is rather magnified, put under the microscope, so the smallest nuance is blown up into the biggest thing because our world is so small. It's comprised of these 60 young men, ages of 18 to 35, and then 12 women, and you're not allowed to talk to the women. That's not accepted. I went there. I felt like I had gained the tools that I needed and I got from what I needed from the program, and that I was ready to go out and face the world on my own accord. And individualism and creativity is not supported there. You must submit to uniformity. That is detrimental for me. I need to make some of my own aesthetic decisions, some of my own atmosphere decisions, geographical decisions, I need to make on my own. It's part of my artistic way of thinking, my school of thought, which is totally robbed of you there. And I thought, like, this isn't what my recovery means to me. I I don't need to stay here to be sober. I'm not going to leave here and die, like they say. I'm actually going to leave here, be extremely grateful for the opportunity, and I'm going to go out and live a successful life. This recovery belongs to me. I'm doing this for myself, not you or your institution. I decided to challenge him a couple times. Everybody feared him there. And I challenged him a few times through conversation, what have you. One of these times he says to me, like, so what can, I, what can we do here to make this better for you? And at the time I was on a running ban, which is something that I had come to find very prudent towards my recovery and my mental health is running five kilometers a day. They had put me on a running ban where I wasn't allowed to run because of some other behavior that I had done. And I was seeing a counselor who I had... Fostered this very therapeutic relationship with and it was going very well and we were meeting for one hour a week And I said look, I'd like to see you for two hours a week. That one hour is not It's not doing it. I really think I could benefit from another hour So after telling him that he put me on an indefinite running man and then took the counseling away from me He actually came into the room where I was sitting with my counselor and said Matthew needs commitment Says to the counselor who was distraught destroyed this place is not for people who have mental health issues, this is for people with addiction problems. And I said, well, a lot of addiction problems stem from some sort of mental disease. And he just had no concept of that and walked out of the room and I was never allowed to see her again. And to me, that was not going to motivate me to be more committed to it. And I said, this is just going to grow unless I deal with it right now you're not supposed to have any secrets in this community. I think that was really fucking shitty of you. I think that was really fucking stupid and I don't agree with it. And in my mind, I'm like, not only that, but you're this elitist conservative fucking Trump supporter who lives in this weird nationalist time. What the fuck do you know (laughs) is really what I wanted to communicate to him. But I didn't do that. And then he was like, for me saying like, you know, you're wrong. He was like, there's the door. Essentially, and the program director told my mother that the entire history that he was there, he had never seen ever tell anyone to leave. Ever. But he was like, All right, well, then go. I was like, Okay, give me my fucking passport. Shook his hand, got my passport. They brought in my luggage. I just went through it and I threw out half of it because I didn't know where I was going to go. I had no money. They give you one phone call. I called my mother, and my mother's like, Don't do this. She's just like, I've seen how much work you put in, I know that you've come a long way, but like, just please stay. In her mind, she might have thought that I was giving up on my recovery, but I was like, no, I am determined. This is my life now. I will prove you wrong. Not that I'm doing this to prove you wrong. I hope that someday we can garnish some trust and start this again. And thankfully, after I left, she was ready to do it right away. They put $60 in a cab. I didn't know... How much money I had, so I just take me to the nearest library, a couple miles outside of Vancouver, at a library. And I, ha- I wasn't on Facebook at the time for over a year, so I reactivate my Facebook account and I just start messaging people that I knew from Vancouver. And this ex lover of mine said, You know what? My boyfriend's best friend lives in Vancouver. I don't live there anymore. I'm in Toronto. I'd message him. And I never met this guy before. His name's Johnny DeCourcy. He came and he picked me up. And I just started my life from there. I surrendered my faith, you know. I I surrendered to my faith, knowing that if I am doing the right things, making the right decisions, I knew that the universe was going to take care of me. My mother is extremely supportive of me leaving the, because she thinks it's courageous of me to make that decision that I got what I wanted from it and that I was ready to walk away on my own independently. She thinks that that took more guts than staying. And now, since I've been out for three and a half months, she knows and sees how committed I am to my recovery because of all of the recovery related things that I do in the course of one day. She's all for it, very excited. She also disagreed with some of that model that she only became aware about through my experiences there. After coming out of the I was on a total pink cloud. All of a sudden I could decide what I wanted to eat. I could decide who, what I wanted to do with my day, what books I wanted to read, if I wanted to go on the internet, if I wanted to go for a walk. I got to choose if I could go for a walk, which made me so grateful of those things. I was blown away by a cell phone. I was like, holy shit, this thing is amazing, you know? <laughs> so all of these things... I was extremely grateful for because I was in a boot camp style treatment center where they stripped me away from everything. So my gratitude was through the roof. It seemed like a lot longer than seven months when you are there. It seems like a long time. You're getting up and doing the exact same thing seven days a week. So right now for my recovery, when I wake up, I read a Just For Today meditation, which is part of a fellowship that I belong to. I read a meditation from a codependency anonymous, which is another fellowship I belong to, CODA. It's called The Language of Letting Go. Two meditations that I spend at least an hour reflecting on. I pray, so I make a conscious contact with my higher self. I thank that power for my sobriety, for my the roof over my head, for most of the I basically do a, a gratitude list for 10 things that I'm grateful for. I exercise, which is a huge part of my physical, emotional and spiritual recovery. I attend meetings within a fellowship. I have a lot of connections within that fellowship that I make on a day-to-day basis. Predominantly one with a very good friend of mine who is also in the early stages of recovery. I have literature that I read line by line with someone over the phone every day that goes through a 12-step anonymous program Every day. Also, I have to take the time to express gratitude towards the people in my immediate present circle that are helping me. I've got this tattoo right here of positive and negative, which is duality and harmony. It means that without negative, the positive doesn't exist. I put this tattoo on myself over my track marks to represent balance, where I need to be reminded of it most. That's something that I have to do the most daily maintenance on, is my spirituality because after almost a year of being sober and working out, my physical stuff, that comes back. The emotional stuff, like the mental stuff, it slowly comes back. But the spiritual stuff is like subconscious and I really need to sit there every day and evaluate what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. Because it could be like that. I could become complacent and I could start ignoring all the red flags. And then instead of being four decisions away from picking up and getting loaded, I'm one decision away. And there I am, having one drink. And then who knows what the fuck's gonna happen? Now I know I can face anything. I have the tools in my tool belt to deal with absolutely anything. And I'm not gonna get loaded. I'm not gonna get high. Maybe it's gonna be a couple days of me acting out of emotion or doing things that, saying things I don't really mean, which I don't necessarily do anymore, but at points in my life, I did in a big way. I would speak out of emotion and say things that I didn't mean. And now I just, I'm very conscious of not doing that. I listen. And um, it's one of the greatest tools that I've been able to develop through recovery. My mother has done a lot of work in Al-Anon and through other support groups that she totally knows how to support me as not an enabler and as like a friend, as someone also in recovery, because she's recovering from a very turbulent relationship that I was the captain of. Success within means having integrity, being honest for the first time in my actual life, not having any secrets, actually working on my resentments, not just throwing them under the rug, but like actively working on them and having the ability to be empathetic for other people. I love that about myself now. I'm proud that I am determined. I do have quite a bit of drive when I do apply myself, and I don't need drugs and alcohol to do that. I want to write about real pain and real happiness. I want to write about and start thinking about how the world is positive and can change instead of just thinking about how it's negative and how all of this change is garbage. And through living an honest, open-minded, and willing lifestyle, I'm able to do those things. There is a solution, and that all of us in the world who have these problems with addictions, we don't need to die at our own hand. We don't need to suffer through this. We can live clean. It just takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. It is 100% worth it. I'm sober, and for me, right now in my life, that's a full-time fucking job. And whatever that takes, I'm gonna fucking do it, you know? So if that means that I'm not living a fruitful life in your mind, or I'm not advancing in my academic career, or I'm not foreseeing all these events with my family, with a house, with a car, I don't really care at all. Because I'm sober, and that's such a huge deal to me. And I know that in time, it won't be such a big deal, but like 10 months clean time is, I'm gonna be self congratulatory here and give myself a big pat on the back. And that's what I'm proud of today. That's what makes me extremely proud. The past is depression, the future is anxiety. I need to be here today where my hands are. There is another way to live. We've found a greater way to live and it doesn't involve using drugs and alcohol. And once you realize that through experience everything else seems slightly more trivial, slightly more petty. My heart stopped once for 15 seconds. I died and I'm back to life now. Does that post that that person on their Facebook get to me? No. They can say whatever they want about Donald Trump and you and me. Like, I really don't care because this time two years ago I was fucking dead. It just really it changes the way that I consider things and taking things personally. So if someone wants to come up to me and say, hey you're a fucking squid or you're spineless, it's like, alright, that's cool man. That belongs to you, not me. I know that I'm not a squid because I'm waking up and I'm not getting high. And to me, that's everything. I never thought it was possible. And that's such a crazy relief. And that is so much more important to me than any of that other bullshit that I could easily get caught up in, which is all just drama. And of course, like I'm a drug addict, I'm still gonna find myself getting caught up in drama sometimes. But I do have the ability to check myself, look at it, and I do have the ability to step outside of that drama and be an adult. Whether or not I choose to do that, that's up to me. But through my experience at the in my recovery, I gained the tools necessary to be able to do that and make those choices. Whereas before, I knew those choices existed, but I didn't know how to make them for myself. Having an addiction is a disease. Being an addict is a disease. It's not a moral deficiency. It's a disease. People with cancer, they don't say, well, I'm gonna have cancer today. Addiction is just like that. Just like having diabetes or cancer. You need to treat that. You need to take care of yourself. You have been listening to Handheld Radio. Handheld Radio is produced and edited by Leo McKay in his non-existent studio in Truro, Nova Scotia. Music in this episode by Pig and by Matthew Samways. Used by permission of the artists. Handheld Radio jingle by Joel Hughes McKay. Website by Ben Brush www.handheldradio.ca Intro and outro vocals by Josianne Gibson Special thanks to Susan Sharpegi and Jill Hamilton I passed one class fifty percent and I remember me and my friend Tyler went to the instructor. My friend Tyler got fifty-four percent and I got fifty percent. And he said to Tyler, like you deserve that fifty four percent. And to me, he said, You didn't deserve that fifty percent, but I gave it to you. Oh, what a fool. I don't know who that might have been. <laughs> was that me? Yeah, I don't even remember that. <laughs> yeah, that was you. <laughs>